It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening. As we get closer and closer to marking 20 years since the 9-11 attacks, so much else is going on in the meantime. Clyde Kitchen will be with us shortly, former intelligence officer with the ODNI, senior fellow with the American Enterprise Institute. We'll get his take on what's happening with these private flights, the private flights that are being uh, told to stay where you are in Masary Sharif, behind enemy lines in te- the, with the Taliban, by our own State Department, because we're not sure who's on them. There's so much wrong with that story. And Bill McGurn at the bottom of the hour. We'll take a break, not only talk about 9-11 from his perspective, former speechwriter for George W. Bush, a columnist for The Wall Street Journal, but what he said about education as we said to go back to school or are going back to school. What we're spending in places like New York and most urban centers and the little we're getting out of it for in terms of our kids and their education, he put it to the numbers and put it to the test. You're going to be horrified. I want him to share it. He'll be joining us, too. And, of course, your phone the phone number we want you to use, one 408 Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Can you honestly say today to those families, to Americans listening, that we are safer today than we were 20 years ago? I tend to think that the actions that we took over the past 20 years, by and large, I think we are in a better position relative to Islamist extremists now than we were, you know, the day before 9-11. How do you feel about it? 9-11, 20 years later, that was General Petraeus. Are we safer? Has our country changed forever? And if so, is it for the better? Your thoughts and calls. Number two. He's been dealing with multiple crises from, uh, you know, the immigration uh, situation at the border to inflation to crime, et cetera. But Afghanistan has really hurt him and and really accelerated uh, the decline that was sort of already underway. Yes. Tom Bevan of uh, of uh, Real Clear Politics. Polls plummeting. Joe Biden goes back to his favorite play, COVID-19. Today, he unveils the six-point plan to tackle the Delta variant, which hit our country in June. My prediction, he'll talk restrictions to break those hesitant on vaccinations. That's leadership Biden-style. Number one. The real challenge here is directions from state, and the State Department is failing to give them adequate information. They're, they're letting them leave. They can catch an Uber and actually leave the base. They don't know exactly how many are even there, so they can't account for someone if they don't return. Congressman Mark Green, a veteran, Taliban, allowed 200 to leave. This story is new. Private flights remain grounded and 10 of thousands of 10 uh, of the thousands of Afghan refugees stream into our country. Some say as many as 65,000, many unvetted, many children without parents and some with an Uber app as they decide to explore Virginia. No joke. Showing Joe Biden's exit from Afghanistan is not only humiliating America, he's also charging the taxpayers billions to pay for it. That is not hyperbole. No joke. And that's where we'll begin. So let me just tell you the story, uh, which I was happy to see, but I don't know many details on. But here we go. The Taliban uh, are actually allowing, thanks to the push from U.S. Representative Zalmay Khalizad, he's the brainchild who 
uh, came up with this peace deal, said the official who spoke to Reuters on a condition of anonymity, departures from Kabul airport expected today. The official cannot say whether the Americans and third country nationals were among the people stranded in Mazari Sharif we've been telling you about over the last few days because their private charters have been not allowed to depart. So we think about 200 people are going to be able to leave. They have tickets and visas. They want to make it seem like a normal flight. I don't know who's on there. I hope it's. I hope they're Americans or at least SIVs, but I'm not sure. Every time we try to get a number, they ballpark. Can you imagine if you're being ballparked? I think we've got about 90 or 110 people here. So the other thing that was clear is the State Department let it be known that these private groups, that they are not giving them permission to land at an American military base and are turning off our bases in other countries, really. Anthony Blinken then clarified, said, no, it's not us that's not letting Mazari Sharif and these six planes leave. Cut one. There's been a fair amount of confusion surrounding the flights, and let me just clarify a few things. As of now, the Taliban are not permitting the charter flights to depart. They claim that some of the passengers do not have the required documentation. While there are limits to what we can do without personnel on the ground, without an airport, with normal security and procedures in place, we are working to do everything in our power to support those flights and to get them off the ground. Really? Because if I talk to people like Chris Mills, like we did earlier this week, he's saying they're doing everything not to support that. Then they had to go over the land because of that. Now, maybe we're not getting cooperation from the Afghan government because they just named some people, four of which we had in prison at Gitmo, uh, four of the five that we exchanged for deserter Bo Bergdahl, fantastic, Mohammed Fazel, deputy defense minister, great, Abdul Haq Wasik, acting director of intelligence, I'm sure he'll be happy, and Norella Nouri served as minister of borders and tribal affairs, he is back, and the leader is unpronounceable, but the acting minister for information and culture who has a history of working with Iran. What could go wrong there? Oh, in terms of security, don't worry. Siraj Haqqani designated a global terrorist. There's a $10 million bounty on his head. The FBI has a picture saying, if you've seen him, we'll pay you. Now he is an official that goes to a palace every day to work. And the new prime minister is Mullah Hassan Akud. Doesn't ring a bell? Maybe his dad does. He is uh, somebody named Mula Omar. So does another uncle of his uh, work there, Mula Omar. Mula Omar, who cut the deal with bin Laden, all back in power. Oh, the guy we've been negotiating with in prison that we let out of prison to negotiate with, his name is uh, Gahani Barada, better known as Barada the Butcher. Seems like a good guy. And since he's not a professional wrestler, I assume it's because he does things he's, it's, as a terrorist that make him earn that nickname. So when they come to our country and our heart goes out to them, especially if they work for us, I'm pulling for them. If we could provide a way to assimilate into our society, oftentimes first-generation immigrants are the most dedicated Americans. I just wish I knew who these people are. Congressman Mark Green does, too. Here's what he said to Laura last night, cut eight. We don't have biometrics on a good portion of these people, and we can't really get information from state because they won't provide names They won't provide any information on the people, the numbers that they have. They won't even tell us how many American citizens they evacuated. We tried to get that number, uh, you know, requested through the National Defense Authorization Act the other day, and and I couldn't get that passed. Um, It's just crazy. This State Department is a complete failure. No kidding. From the institutionalists, the ones that are there, regardless of the administration, to the appointees, headed by Tony Blinken, 
who could not look more overwhelmed. So, now that we're not in Afghanistan, we must be saving a lot of money. Wrong. We left $50 billion worth of equipment there. That hurts. $6.4 billion they're now asking for, is the president, uh, because not only humiliating in us and the nation in front of our allies and having our enemies laugh at us is not enough, now we have to resettle all those people we let down. So he wants $6.4 billion from Congress. It's our money. $2.4 billion for the Defense Department to work it out because most of these refugees go to military bases. $1.3 billion for a resettlement. A lot of people are going to need to pack up, bubble wrap, and be able to move into a home, a condo, or something we'll pay for. $816 million is going to be need for international development. So maybe people want to be settled Beyond our borders, $193 million for the U.S. citizenship and immigration. we got to be able to process and get all these people green cards. That's the big push. And $1.7 billion to HHS, Homeland Security. They don't deserve health and human services, I should say. $1.7 billion for all their care. They're going to be eligible for welfare, unemployment, who knows. Maybe free college if this $3.5 trillion goes through. Incredible. Do you know? Today's, uh, I think it's the World, well, Washington Post, the federal government is currently caring for more than 100 Afghan children who arrived in the U.S. without their parents. So, great. The unaccompanied minors who came from our southern border will have somebody to play with. And if you're looking for babysitters, we have some of the families who came here with nothing that we put up in military bases that have a lot of free time on their hands and seem to be bored to tears. So we'll put them to work. Uh, I don't want to take too much more time uh, away from my next guest, so I'll take a, a, a bow out early. What I want you to do is stay on board at 45 after. We'll open up the phones again. If you want to write me, BrianKilmead.com. Uh, Just click on comments, and you'll be able to interact. When we come back, Klein Kitchen, former intel officer for the ODNI, doing things to get our Americans out. Also important, he knows where we stand right now when it comes to our security here at home. This is the Brian Kilmead Show. Glad you're here. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. As we've said many times, the international community is watching. The United States is watching. It's whether they let people uh, depart the country who want to depart, whether they treat women across the country as they have committed to treat them, and how they behave and operate. And therefore, we're not moving toward recognition. At the same time, we're dealing with a reality world here where we have to engage in order to get American citizens and others out of the country. Pathetic. Jen Psaki admitting we gave up the country to a group of terrorists who said they were going to be broad-based and inclusive. Instead, they gave us Terror University. Joining me now is Claude Kitchen, former intelligence officer with an ODNI, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Klein, how do we get our people out, and how does the administration not realize they're culpable for us getting in this situation? Well, in terms of helping the administration realize what they've done, I don't think there's a lot of hope. Uh, You know, recently the Secretary of State was bemoaning that this new uh, Afghan government wasn't inclusive enough. You believe (laughs) that? As as though that's the problem, right? I mean, at a point where we still have 200 Americans trying to get out, we have the Taliban – uh, preventing flights from taking off, uh, and we're worried about inclusivity. Uh, I think it just—I think that just demonstrates the lack of seriousness that the administration has taken on this. Uh, and you know, the, the the spokeswoman will will 
you know, huff and puff and, and strike a strong posture when she's asked a hard question. But at the end of the day, they just don't have good answers, and I think that's proving proving out. Uh, Con, the one thing is pretty clear. They keep saying, we, we can't let these private flights out as our – uh, as our, our former, our retired vets are, are going to action to try to help save the SIVs as well as Americans over there, and they're doing their own thing. They say, well, we can't, even though we know we believe there's Americans on there, we just can't let these planes out because we don't know really who's on them, despite because we have no people on the ground. Is that an acceptable answer? No, of course not. I mean, it's a, it's a type of indirect hostage taking, right? I mean, again, Secretary Blinken's out talking about, you know, we're doing, we're working on it to do everything in our power to support these flights. And the thing that is ignored in that kind of a statement is that, one, we'd have a lot more power in this situation if we hadn't left so recklessly, and we wouldn't even need it if we'd evacuated every American before leaving. So this is all just one big own goal by the administration. This did not have to be uh, as terrible as it is shaping up to be. And I'm afraid that it's only going to get worse. Um, the, the Taliban has a, a little bit of a, of a trump card right now in the sense that they have people that they know our government values and the other, other Western governments value. And they are, I guarantee you, extracting concessions by uh, you know withholding these plane flights from being able to take off. So what they'll do is they need cash, right? They obviously need recognition. They want us to staff our embassy again and want to be looked at as legitimate with Haqqani as their essentially their FBI director, we're supposed to go back and work with a country that we have as their intelligence officer, a 20 million or a 10 million dollar bounty on his head. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Siraj Haqqani and his father, Jaladin and Haqqani, the for those for your listeners who, who may not be a nerd like me and follow all this stuff. The Haqqani network was a critical network that provided both manpower and equipment into uh, Afghanistan to al-Qaeda and uh, more broadly the Taliban during the, the post-9-11 world. These guys are as bad as it gets. And uh, the, the, the point of, of Siraj Haqqani now being essentially the equivalent of their, their FBI director is just yet another example, but not the only example, that any notion that the Taliban is going to be this inclusive or, or liberalized new version 2.0 is just wishful thinking on the Western side. Uh, there's no basis in reality to expect that. So one thing is other thing, uh, other area of your expertise, it's what's going on with the China virus. And we know, too, that it came from the Wuhan lab. It's all but been confirmed as China denies it. But what are the 900 pages published by the Intel, uh, by um, the, uh, the. DNI. Uh, yeah, well, the we got the 900 pages now. And now it's published that Anthony Fauci greenlighted grants to the Wuhan lab through Peter Daszak's group, and this gets out there, and obviously he did not tell the truth in front of Congress. If he not, he parsed the word so disingenuously. He deserves to be fired. What did we learn from those 900 pages from The Intercept? Well, so uh, I actually haven't been able to work through all 900 pages of those yet, uh, but I'll tell you, in terms of what you mentioned about Fauci, it's really too bad because someone in his position uh, simply can't afford to squander their public legitimacy. And I think bipartisan recognition is that, that that's what he's done. And I think, you, you know, some of his engagements recently uh, on, on Capitol Hill, uh, particularly with like Senator Rand Paul, whom I, you know, don't always agree with, but it's very clear that he's so torturously parsing words that it, you know, legitimately invites real skepticism on what you can accept and what you can uh, believe from Dr. Fauci. 
which is unfortunate because, you know, we have a lot of unanswered questions about all of this. Uh, people, uh, Americans have a real desire and, and legitimate need to, to understand the truth of the situation. And we need spokespeople like him to be able to be trustworthy. But I'm afraid he's just squandered that. The other thing we have to look out is 95,000 Afghans are going to be on military bases in this country. And my sense is if they are worthy of coming back here over the last 20 years, that many people we work with, let alone the third country ones, okay, then why are most SIVs being by, told, we're told by the State Department most SIVs are still in their country? I want you to hear what Mark Green says. He's finding out about the refugees that are coming here now. Cut seven. I'm talking to sources that are at multiple locations. You know, the real challenge here is directions from state. You know, DOD is getting its directions on how to handle these situations by the State Department. And the State Department is failing to give them adequate information. They're, they're letting them leave. They can catch an Uber and actually leave the base. They don't know exactly how many are even there. So they can't account for someone if they don't return. And they're telling the people, oh, if you go and you don't come back, well, that will end your visa processing. But if they want free, they're gone. There's nobody keeping them from leaving. And then you get the shocking allegations of harassment and sexual assault. And it's just it's horrific. We have no control of Afghanistan and no control over who's leaving Afghanistan and no control when we get the Afghanis into our country. Well, I mean, look, this is just the latest example of what is a growing list of examples of how the administration simply was not prepared to do this. Uh, They did not put the infrastructure uh, or the planning into leaving Afghanistan. They have not put in the infrastructure or the planning in terms of managing what happens after we have left Afghanistan. And it's not the kind of plane that you can fly or that you can build while flying. Uh, This thing is kind of hurtling toward the ground, and I'm afraid we haven't seen all of the carnage yet. I think there's going to be a lot of disruption. I think there's going to be a huge political price uh, for the administration to pay, and frankly, they deserve it. And it's to the point it should be embarrassing to this government that private industry had to come in and try to save Americans, and they've done just that by the thousands, and they're going to be the ones to get them out. Klein Kitchen, thanks so much. Yeah, it's a pleasure. You got it. Uh, When we come back, Phil McGurn joins us. He talks about real structural racism. It's called education, and it's not money. It's effort. It's quality. We'll explain what's happening in America's cities and also look back at 9-11 20 years later. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. In every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. From this day forward, any nation that continues to harbor or support terrorism will be regarded by the United States as a hostile regime. There's no negotiations. There's no calendar. We'll act on our time. Yeah, that was George Bush, definitive. If whether, if whatever you thought of him, the guy was a leader. You might not like the direction. I love the fact that he empowered his generals, for better or for worse. They had the, his support. But he did. These uh, generals are not being empowered now. Either that or they're making the worst decisions possible. And that's what we're seeing over the last few weeks. The worst decisions in American military history. It's embarrassed us at home and abroad. Bill McGurn, Main Street columnist for The Wall Street Journal, former editorial page editor of The New York Post, former chief speechwriter for George W. Bush joins us now. Bill, am I overstating this when I talk about the global embarrassment America's experiencing? 
No, I, I don't think you're overstating it. In fact, at a time when the president is trying to argue this is a uh, a military success, you know, oh. akin to the uh, Berlin airlift or, or um, the Normandy invasion, it's it just boggles the mind. And claiming that our allies were were with us when they were not, um, the whole world can see this. We're just we're strategically poor for this. The world is a more dangerous place. Anytime people start to doubt American resolve and credibility. And I believe they are. Listen to what Tony Blair said. America has decided that for the foreseeable future, it is a very limited appetite for military engagement, which gives our allies anxiety and our opponents a belief that our time is over. I mean, he said it directly. People, oh, he's upset. Oh, Tony Blair should talk. He was in support of the Iraq War, whatever. Tony Blair was by our side. A British fight like warriors. They've been there every step of the way. They lost 400 guys. And he, the president didn't have the courtesy to call up Boris Johnson and tell him what he was doing or call him back for 36 hours. Yeah, no, exactly. Look, uh, you know, on 9-11, I was going into work in lower Manhattan when it happened right before I arrived. I was taking a train to the water's edge of the Hudson, and then I usually take a ferry. I couldn't get in because of the uh, the attack. I went I went back home and then went to an office we had in New Jersey. My brother was in one of those towers. Um, he managed to get out, but we didn't find out for hours. It was just such a terrible, terrible day. But I don't think any ever ever doubted George W. Bush's resolve. I wasn't with George Bush then. But in his second term, you know, I was there. I wrote the speech for the fifth anniversary of 9-11, and it was all about resolve. And if you remember, everyone then was attacking Bush for um, for Iraq until the surge turned things around. I think Iraq has been fairly successful or reasonably successful because we stuck it out and showed our reserve, resolve and didn't cut and run when all the pressure was on to do that. And now we have Afghanistan, which Joe Biden once called the necessary war, just blowing up in our face. Can you imagine this 9-11, what it's going to look like? All those guys in Kabul, they're, they're nine hours ahead. So by the time the president wakes up and starts to go to the sites, we're going to have images of them parading around um, you know, with our captured weaponry and uniforms and so forth, it, it, it's going to be appalling. In our embassy, I think they have plans to do it in our embassy. Uh, I'm going to be real quick because I want to get to your education piece, too. But you write today, great presidents appeal to the better angels of our nature, not this one. And one of the things you bring up that it better not be true, and so far it isn't, it said uh, the critics who accuse the president of having no strategy miss the point. What, he, what they are seeing is the strategy. It is based on what Biden's confidence that no one will hold the disastrous consequences of his decision about Afghanistan against him so long as our troops are gone. So far over the weekend, the most click stories, despite the natural disaster and the controversial Texas abortion law and election law, this was eight out of 10 stories clicked on were Afghanistan related. Does, do I have false hope? Uh, I I don't think so. I mean, look, it's going to be more difficult because there are fewer journalists in in um, Afghanistan to report this, and we don't know what the uh, what the access is to the internet, for example, of people there to send stuff out. I hope not. But you know, if you remember when that interview with George Stephanopoulos, when uh, Mr. Stephanopoulos asked the president, "What about these poor Afghan men clutching?" to the um, wheels of our aircraft as they're taking off and falling <laughs> off. And his response was, 
hey, man, that was, you know, that was four or five days ago. I mean, <laughs> it was just appalling. Uh, it, you know, it reminded me, these guys reminded me on 9-11 of the people that jumped off the towers because, you know, what was behind them seemed so much worse than than the, the way they jumped. Um, it, it's just staggering. And I think that he's betting, it's a cynical bet, that Americans won't care what happens in Afghanistan so long as our men and women in uniform aren't there. And I, I, don't, I don't believe the American people are like that. And the problem is we still have people there and their families and they're going to be hands up. And there's military people who said, my, my guy, uh, the, my SIV kept me alive and now I can't get anybody to cooperate with me. And we see what private industry is doing. Uh, on top of that, that was a great point that you brought up, too. How about the fact that our military didn't have permission to go outside the wire to get our people who were begging for help? They said they couldn't get past the checkpoints. So the British went out, the Australians went out, the Poles went out, but Americans did not go out. You know why? And you write about it. President Biden was afraid of another Black Hawk Down moment. Everything was about avoiding images. You know, early on, when we were evacuating, you can bet that the pilots were ordered, don't land your helicopter on the embassy rooftop because you'll get a photo too close to what happened in 1975 Saigon. Everything was about um, avoiding risks and so forth. And then, of course, that's how you get people killed. And we had all those uh, brave Marines and the, the, uh, the Army soldier and the Navy medic um, getting killed. Uh, I think they would much rather be allowed to do what they're trained to do to go out and get people. It's just it's just shameful all around. Um, you know, the original thing was done for a photo op. Uh, Joe Biden wanted to use this Saturday's 20th anniversary and saying, I did what Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and George Bush couldn't do. I got us out of our forever war. That's why the timetable is what it is, you know, withdrawing people during the fighting season. And uh, I don't know what he's going to say now. Uh, he seems delusional to me. He seems to be saying, you know, this is um, this is such a great victory. And I remember he has said, I've made no mistakes. Um, you know, I've done everything um, the way it should be done. Always going to be messy. But the Secretary of State Blinken saying that the Taliban is now hold, basically deciding not to let the Masri Sharif Sharif play, uh, planes get out, and now we understand some mysterious private uh, commercial jet is leaving Kabul airport. We think with Americans and so-called Westerners. So the president said it's not going to be like Saigon. It was. He said the Taliban, it's not inevitable they take over the country. They did. He said the Afghans have a 300,000-man fighting force, the best equipped in the world. Now the Taliban have everything, and they melted away. But what also tells us, Bill, when you get the transcript in that Reuters story of a phone call with Gahani, he's lying somewhere because he told Gahani, the perception is you're losing, as I paraphrase. Change the perception. Now we're going to help right. you. We're going to fortify right. you. Change the perception. Yeah. Well, you know, how different that is from my old boss, George W. Bush. I know it's not popular to like him, but I was there in the surge, the lowest point in his administration. No one wanted any more fighting and so forth. And what he said is, I'm not going to change the perception. I'm going to change the reality, and I'm going to do what's right. And he used to tell me, Billy, we are not going to leave Iraq um, from the rooftop of an embassy the way we did Saigon. We're not going to sell out the people that way. And I, I think you could see the difference. He also took real responsibility in that speech, speech announcing the surge. It's worth comparing to Biden's remarks because he said um, our men and women in uniform have performed magnificently. They have done everything I have asked of them. Any mistakes are mine. 
And then he went on to say why he was changing the strategy, not why it was all these other people's fault that we were where we were. A gutsy move and ended up working, but he did change the strategy, and he did get it right, and the surge worked. And Barack Obama came in and took everybody out, and they had the surge again. In the end, we got the JV team we now call ISIS, uh, which is a legitimate threat. And sitting in the Taliban, sitting in uh, the Capitol, is uh, four of uh, four officers that were once in Gitmo. Unbelievable. Bill, you uh, talk about structural racism, but instead of just looking back and saying that America is not racist, you went back and looked at the numbers and you realized that education has everything to do with our future. And you looked at 27 urban school districts that reported the results in 2019 from Boston to Chicago to Fort Worth, Texas, and Los Angeles. Not a single one of these school systems the, had the majority of black eighth graders in their care proficient in math or reading. And it's not for a lack of money. In New York City, the public schools show 10% proficiency for black eighth graders. In math, 14%. If our future is based on our education, no wonder people feel so glum about their future if you're in New York City or in some of these major cities. But yet we're paying millions of dollars. Right. Well, look, I, you, you know me. I'm a skeptic about uh, critical race theory and structural racism. But if you just look objectively at the United States and you say, is there any structure in here that continually produces racist results no matter how much money we pour into it? I think you would have to say our big city public schools. And what I looked at was the proficiency rates in math and reading for black eighth graders, because it's an inflection yep, point, right? Absolutely. If, they're, if they're not at level, then they're likely not going to graduate high school at level. And in these 27 um, big city districts that report the results to Nate by the district, most of the reporting is by state, but by the district, not a single one of these had um, had the majority of black students in their care at proficient. In fact, the highest level of anything was, I think, 24% in math by, by the school district in Charlotte, which still means three quarters of black kids are not able to do uh, math in that, um, in that area. It's such, it's such an indictment. And yet the same progressives who are telling us about structural racism just want to plow more money into a structure that's dominated by the teachers' unions. And we saw how attentive they were to parents and the needs of students over COVID, you know, when they kept schools closed longer than they should have been. So it, it, it staggers my mind why the public school failure for African-American children isn't considered one of the tremendous embarrassments and why progressives don't join conservatives in saying these moms and dads of these kids, they need more and better options to get into schools where the kids come first and they learn like the charter schools. Instead, they go after the charter schools and they go after testing. They're trying to eliminate the embarrassment by just eliminating the testing and then imposing some kind of quotas, you know, downstream. And stop it with the elite schools because it bars too many minorities don't get into them. Really? Uh, that is not the case. And it's not like we're trying to spend less. In New York, they spend an average of 28000 per kid. Boston, 25000 uh, Boston City Schools, Washington Schools in D.C., 22000 uh, Of the 100 largest, you write, the 100 largest public school systems based on enrollment, the six that spent the most per pupil were the New York City Schools, uh, Boston, Washington, San Francisco, Atlanta, and Seattle in Washington, and the results are horrific. 
that's what people should be running on. And if you're a Republican, go in the inner city, tell your story. I don't care if three people show up. It's the right thing to do. Yeah, I agree. Look, I think one of the uh, one of the great things about the Republican convention last year, which has been lost in all the fighting over the results, is they really highlighted school choice and the difference that was making in the lives of real American families, um, you know, and diverse American families, families with special needs, uh, families of racial minorities and so forth. What a difference it made to give them the ability to send their kids to a decent school. And uh, clearly the need is there. I mean, you look at these NAEP results and they just scream at you, this is a giant failure. Plus people have been writing about the failure for years. And again, on the Democratic and progressive side, the answer is only more money to public schools and feed the existing structure, which has zero accountability to parents built into it. Must be killing George Bush to see all this stuff going on, too, <laughs> on the 9-11. Uh, I, I know he has to speak for himself, but he will not be speaking out against any president, really. Bill McGurn, Main Street columnist for The Wall Street Journal. Two important perspectives. Appreciate you sharing. Thanks, brother. You got it. one 866 408 Remember, one of the questions I asked you I haven't gone over yet, 9-11, 20 years later. I'll tell you the results of a study, but I want to know what you think. Are we safer? Has our country changed forever? Don't move. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. The most important question I have to ask you is, how about my ratings? Your ratings are fabulous. I just saw you're now the king of late night. Yes. I mean, you're beating some very untalented people, to be honest with you. So I'm not so sure how great that is, but... They are so bad, and it's about time somebody came in and you're really beating them badly. Great. I feel kind of guilty about it because I feel like I'm beating up unarmed people. Well, they're not very talented. You are. So congratulations. I'm mildly talented. They're just (laughs) untalented. Well, And you're very different. Yes, I am very different. And that, that's very funny. And it's so funny to hear the president being interviewed while the live audience responds to a taped interview. Uh, that was great. Gutfeld, that was a, that was a great line. Uh, 1-866-408-7669. So I'll give you the results of this poll. And it's kind of interesting. So when it comes to 9-11, uh, what do you think has uh, really changed over the last 20 years? You think the country has changed forever. Now, you think about this. We had no idea about terror at a, at a national level. We only had it in, in terrorist circles. If you cared about the embassy bombings, the, the coal bombing, it probably wasn't in everyday thought. But when you think about what happened after, think about when you go into your building, you need your ID card. Think about when you go on a plane and everything you have to go through. They're taking off the shoes, everything on down from that. Think about everything. You, you can't go anywhere without ID, period, unless, of course, you want to vote. That's for a different conversation. doesn't really matter what you have on then or where you want to do it. There's going to be no follow-through. In terms of being aware and looking around, I think people are over the fact that no one's saying it's anti-Muslim. What they're saying, we're anti-terrorists. So Fox News did a poll. And it says, have you, uh, uh, what has changed, uh, has America changed? The America we live in changed. Uh, in August 2020, uh, they, the answer was 64% says, yes, we permanently changed. Uh, in June 2021, uh, it was 50%. Wow. Uh, now, uh, in August 2021, the question, yes, temporarily changed, 24%. The number temporarily was in June, 42%. Significant, no real change, 9 and 6%. 
Uh, I think the country has changed uh, markedly. I mean, we're definitely more aware for a while. We were more patriotic. Now we're much more uh, cynical. And now we had two wars simultaneous. Now we're getting rid of the last one in terms of an outright conflict. But in neither place has the threat really gone down. We just chose to downgrade it. And I just hope for Joe Biden, if there's anything that comes out of this, he'll realize the danger of pulling out of Syria and pulling out entirely of Iraq. Now you have this radical in charge of Iran who is breaking off negotiations, thankfully, on revitalizing the Iranian deal, their nuclear deal. They've kicked inspectors really out, and I shut down their cameras, I understand, on these, uh, on these nuclear bases. So just assume they're going to have a nuclear weapon. Just assume Israel is going to take action. Just assume if we don't have anybody in the region, how vulnerable we're going to be, if not— Vulnerable without troops, vulnerable without engagement, vulnerable without human intelligence, which is called what we're at right now in Afghanistan because we chose to leave and the terrorists chose to come and stay. Hey, go to BrianKillMe.com. Find out about the president and freedom fighter available November 3rd and where I'll be live on stage from Ponte Vedra to Orlando to Clearwater to West Virginia. Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show coming to you from New York. Heard around the country, heard around the world. This hour, we're going to be joined by Senator Ben Sass. If there's anyone that seems angrier, maybe than Lindsey Graham and me, it might be Senator Ben Sass. We know that uh, what has happened in Afghanistan is so outrageous on every level. I'll bring you the latest and get his perspective and what it's going to be like when Tony Blinken comes in in front of his committee next week. Also, uh, Chris Wallace wrote a great book, and man, how timely. Uh, it's 20 years since the 9-11 attacks. And, of course, he has uh, now got a, a great book out. It's called Countdown Bin Laden. He has a great way of weaving a story. We're familiar with the ending, but not all the nuances in between the 247-day hunt to bring the, uh, the master of 9-11, uh, mastermind of 9-11 to justice. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Can you honestly say today to those families, to Americans listening, that we are safer today than we were 20 years ago? I tend to think that the actions that we took over the past 20 years, by and large, I think we are in a better position relative to Islamist extremists now than we were, you know, the day before 9-11. General David Petraeus, 9-11, 20 years later. He was in Kosovo, but we know what he did in Afghanistan with the surge and Iraq with the surge. Are we safer? Has our country changed forever? There's a poll out. I'll share you the results, but I also want to know what you think. Number two. He's been dealing with multiple crises from, uh, you know, the immigration uh, situation at the border to inflation to crime, etc. But Afghanistan has really hurt him and and really accelerated uh, the decline that was sort of already underway. Tom Bevan, Real Crew of Politics. Polls plummeting. Joe Biden goes back to call his favorite play. I did that because football's coming up tonight. COVID-19. Today, he unveils his six-point plan to tackle the Delta variant that came to our country in June, which hit, of course, months ago, but now he has a plan. My prediction, he'll talk more restrictions, berate those hesitant on the vaccine. That's leadership Biden style. Number one. The real challenge here is directions from state. And the State Department is failing to give them adequate information. 
They're, they're letting them leave. They can catch an Uber and actually leave the base. They don't know exactly how many are even there. So they can't account for someone if they don't return. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Mark Green, a veteran officer, Taliban. And now he's a congressman from Tennessee. Taliban allowed 200 to leave. This just came in over the last few hours. Uh, the other flights remain grounded, we believe, in Mazari Sharif, while tens of thousands of Afghan refugees stream into our country. We should be prepared, reportedly, for 95,000. Many unvetted, many children without parents, and some others with an Uber app, as you just heard, there to explore Virginia. No joke. Showing Joe Biden's exit from Afghanistan is not only humiliating America, he's also charging the taxpayers billions to pay for it. And that is not, that is not hyperbole. So let's bring in this guy that was on this show. Ladies and gentlemen, my first guest is the anchor of Fox News Sunday and an author who has written a new book, Countdown Bin Laden. Please welcome back to The Late Show, Chris Wallace. And there he is. Let's welcome back to our show, Chris Wallace. Chris, the untold story of the 247-day hunt to bring the mastermind of 9-11 to justice. Welcome back, Chris. You know, I love being on your show, and yes, I love you more than Stephen Colbert, but he's got one thing you don't. He's what? got an in-house band. I know. And uh, you, you ought to think about it. John Baptiste, my, my buddy, you know, I, I, I don't know if you, if you should look at the video. I did a bit of business with uh, John, and, you know, I'm going to sit in with a band next time. It, it, it's pretty cool. You want to have an in-house band. What instrument do you play? I, as I said to John, I, the music flows through me. I, I'm poly instrumental. <laughs> you are the instrument. That my voice. I'd say that to Lorraine every once in a while. My wife. I say, "Honey, my voice is my instrument." She looks at me like, "Just be quiet. Go, go somewhere else." Right. Uh, but then she does make you dinner or or make you some soup from her cookbook. So, Chris, what was it like going to Stephen Colbert yesterday? Well, it turns out they said that it was my fifth appearance on Colbert. And, um, you know, I, this was actually the, the best and the most pleasant Colbert experience because oftentimes he wants to uh, talk Trump, stick it to me about Fox and, oh, why do you know, so and so says this and what do you think of that? And, you know, I'm, I, I'd say I'm not going to bad rap my colleagues to you, Stephen. And, uh, but like this time it was all about the book and about, current events and uh, me hanging out with the band. And so it was all good. It was fun. And I did the interview at six o'clock. This is the best part of the whole experience. And I said, you know, I've got to get in a car and drive back to Washington as soon as this is over. And they said, do you want dinner? And I said, yeah, could you get me Shake Shack? And so when I got in my car to go home, there was a nice Shake Shack. It was delicious. Wow. So you didn't yeah. even want like do, a. Do you offer? You know, not only do you have a band, do you offer Shake Shack to your guests? It's been so long since I had an in-studio guest, I don't even remember. Well, you, you know, let me say, maybe you'd have more guests in studio if you offered Shake Shack. Right, absolutely. But you know what? I would always have, especially if I didn't have to work right away. I would say yes. I would like knowing you. You'd like a glass of wine. I would love a beer at the end of an appearance like that, especially for my drive back to Washington. That's where we're different. Shake Shack does not have an alcohol license. No, I gotta say though, the the vanilla milkshake is just great. It, I mean, you regret it when you drink it, but boy, it's it's delicious, delicious. You know, so I I, I read half your book. It is great, and uh, and a lot of stuff I didn't know. Some I didn't remember. Some I didn't. I don't think I knew at all. And that was 
you know, uh, a couple of things that were going on the way El Kuwaiti, who was hooked up and was verified by by keeping Khalid Sheikh Mohammed alive and did not know we continued to have cameras or listening devices in at Gitmo for these guys where he came back and briefed everyone, said, whatever you do, don't talk about the courier. And that helped lead to understanding that that was indeed the courier to bin Laden who would reveal the Abbottabad lair that he was at. Who else would put a – and Panetta saying who else would put a wall around their balcony. There's got to be some high-value person there. So a lot of the nuances in the stories and where you do it, that's why the book is selling so well already. I saw it on Amazon. It's doing great. But I get wistful because I think how far we've come and how good I felt in 2011 and how I feel now in 2021. It must, it must really tear at you, too, since you really dove into the nuances of this story. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and the idea that we are sitting here today and the, and the, the gang, the thugs, that it were in charge of Afghanistan on 9-11, the Taliban, are in charge of Afghanistan on 9-11-2021, and that al-Qaeda is going to be regenerated and ISIS-K is going to be regenerated and that this is going to become terror central. You know, they beat the U.S., so everybody's going to want to be there. I, I just would say two points about it, though. One, that, you know... <laughs> As bad as it ended, the fact is we did a lot of great things in those 20 years, and I think nothing greater than bringing down bin Laden and decapitating al-Qaeda and protecting the homeland from an attack from Afghanistan for 20 years. And that's what getting bin Laden was all about. And the second thing is, as screwed up as what happened in the last month is in terms of the intel community being so wrong about uh, Taliban sweeping to power and all the decisions that, that, that Biden made and the cross purposes with the military, that uh, in 2011, the intel community and the political officials and the military worked together seamlessly, and that's how they were able to bring this off. So if, if this is a case study right now of, of what not to do, that's a case study of what to do. Couple of things, Chris. You're absolutely right in the way they work together and they checked against each other. And of course, Joe Biden against the, you know, against the move. I'm fine with it. You know, it was risky. We knew to go into Abbottabad with these uh, these Blackhawk helicopters that are undetectable from radar. I get it. We they saw the danger of the mission. I get it. So, but he's on record of making the wrong choice there. But Chris, there's a couple of things I think are underreported, and you're the only show not to do it. I watch all the Sunday shows. It helps me pick out sound and get a total comprehensive look for the week. So I start with you. I also know I can watch the replay when I'm getting in the shower in the morning. So I'm not urgent to watch you in the DVR. But do you know 35 minutes before Meet the Press brought up Afghanistan and only related to his poll numbers? And then when the same thing with Face the Nation, they did an interview, but 30 minutes before it started. I mean, this is a top story. If not, it's 1B. The images of, of January 6th are compelling. I get it. But what images are more compelling than a cargo jet taking off and Afghanis hanging off the wheel well? I mean, this is what happened in Joe Biden's evacuation plan. And no one can feel as though they have to do that story on Sunday. On, on what news department do they, are they been brought up on? No, I, I completely agree with you. And we had Mike McCall, the top Republican on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He made huge news. He, he, he broke some big news. He talked about the fact that there were Americans stuck at this base in northern Afghanistan and they couldn't get out. Now, I've got to say, I don't know how you feel. I still find it confusing 
as to did the Taliban hold them hostage? Or did, was the State Department slow? I, part of it, I think, is the State Department doesn't want to make it seem like a hostage crisis. So if you say, well, the Taliban's not letting them out, they say, well, no, that's paperwork, because they don't want to make it seem that way. Because uh, I think they think that'll inflame and escalate the situation and make it harder to get people out. But I agree with you. This is still a big story. Americans, a hundred or so Americans can't get out. Thousands of our Afghan allies can't get out. The terror threat increasing. And, you know, just because you don't put it on the air, it's not going away. A couple of things. Uh, I think what's totally getting underreported, and I am surprised, I continue to be surprised, is that this, these phone calls, not only with the president, but with Mark Milley, when they both tell Gahani, uh, change the perception. Even if it's not the case, change the perception. And Gahani says specifically, there are ten to 15,000 terrorists coming through Pakistan, supported by Pakistan. I need air cover. And they tell him, change the perception. And yet they want to turn around and say, no one thought the army was going to fall like that? They haven't won a single battle in any province. They put it. They did not put up a fight. And Kabul falls like paper mache. And if you listen to the, if you read the transcript of the calls that Reuters got, they had to have expected that. And if Joe Biden didn't, the man that's been wearing a uniform and uh, and camouflage for fifty years, Mark Milley, he should give up his bars if he can't assess that the Taliban was about to take over. And the Afghan army was about to fall apart. Well, I'm going to defend Milley, and, and I'm not going to defend Biden, but I'll defend Milley to this extent. They have a meeting in the Situation Room in April of 2021 now. And, you know, the, 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 Trump had set the deadline of May 1st. They know that that's unrealistic. They can't get out that soon. But there's a, there's, oh, what are we going to do? And Milley says we need 2,500 to 5,000 troops there. We can keep uh, Bagram, we can uh, provide air cover. We can, you know, we can we can keep the troops, the the Afghan security forces in control. They're not going to melt away. And Biden overrules them and basically says, "Look, we're going to get out. We're going to get out to zero. First, he says by September 11th, then he says by August 31st. I want you to get down and and forget Bagram. The only thing you're in charge of is." getting people out from Kabul airport downtown and the embassy. So in fairness to Milley, you know, when, when they say, well, he said, you know, Biden says, well, they didn't told us we shouldn't go back to Bagram. He couldn't go back to Bagram because he was following the president's orders with the amount of troops that Biden gave him to have. He didn't have any choices. And, and you know, so he's he's the general. The commander in chief tells him you have to do certain things with a certain number of troops. It really tied his hand. So I, I put this all on Biden. In a way, I know that. And I know that situation. He said, if you're only going to give me 600 troops, this is what I'm going to need. He said, I'm going to need like basically 5,000 or 10,000 in order to retake Bagram. He told Jennifer Griffin, fine. You put 5,000 into the airport in a week. You could have put 10,000 on the ground because you tell the president that we could have thousands of Americans trapped behind enemy lines because, Mr. President, the Afghan army is not getting support at the beginning to melt away. They have not fought for any province to this date where there's no guarantee that Kabul will stand. And when he talked to Gahani, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said, change the perception and the optics. That is not what a would a military man should be telling the leader of a country and then turn around and tell the American people— 
No one predicted they would fall this fast. Final thought? Well, I would just say, you know, in in the book, Countdown Bin Laden, uh, one of the two people who says don't do the raid when they have their final meeting on April 28th is Joe Biden. And the other is Bob Gates, the secretary of defense. And Gates had made it pretty clear for a long period of time he didn't think much of Biden. You know how he said in his memoir, he's been wrong about everything for 40 years. He had said that. So he's going back to the Pentagon after this meeting with uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark, Mark Mullen, Mike Mullen. And Mullen says to him, hey, you say he's been wrong about everything for 40 years. You just voted with him not to go on the raid. So it was kind of an open secret and an open joke what Bob Gates right. thought of Joe Biden. I, I'm up against it, but what, who are your guests? I hear your guests lined up. Well, we, uh, we're going to be talking about Afghanistan on the 9-11, and we have an exclusive interview, very interesting interview, just did it, with Stephen Breyer, the, 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 and, and he talks a lot about retirement. Wow. He talks about why the court didn't take the Trump challenges and talks about the idea of expanding, packing the court. All of that with Stephen Breyer on Fox News Sunday. And listen, get Countdown Bin Laden. It is really good. I know you think you know the story, but not like this. Chris, congratulations on the book. Thank you, my friend. You got it. one 408 7669 Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. None of this is about supporting life. What this is about is controlling women's bodies and controlling people who are not cisgender men. This is about making sure that someone like me as a woman or any menstruating person in this country cannot make decisions over their own body. Do you believe this? This is uh, AOC talking to uh, befuddled Anderson Cooper on CNN, and she's afraid to even say the word woman. This isn't about a woman's right to choose. This is about a menstruating person's menstruating person's cyst. Man, I don't even know. I can't. I'm not even interested in these terms. Who speaks like this? Is she speaking for a group of people that I'm just detached from, Allison? She's speaking for the super woke. I mean, that's how they'll talk. I mean, is this where does she get this from? I mean, is there a dictionary like this? There are terms with that. We did have a whole course on this regarding cisgender and whatnot. But no, it's it's a whole different vocabulary. There are so many different terms for it. I feel like it's a full time job just keeping up. So this was uh, something that was made big news. Then she went out and said that I guess transgender men can menstruate, which I did not know, nor did I want to know. I don't understand how that works. But right. I mean, then yeah, that menstruating people. Right. So yeah. I I know it, it can it just blows your mind. But it but it's all a master effort to distract from the major issues in this country. Inflation that's affecting everyone's bottom line. Uh people 60% of our workforce is working, that's 40% that is not. Then you have a border situation that is egregious and horrific, a pandemic that's persistent and an Afghanistan evacuation that is one of the worst in our nation's military history. And she wants to talk about the Texas law that most likely will be struck down by the Supreme Court anyway. Anything but, anything but the real issues that affect the American people and America. The more you listen... 
the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Following up on these charter flights that the Taliban is holding up in Afghanistan, the Secretary of State said there are limits to what we can do without personnel on the ground. Yeah. You just said we are not on the ground. You're right. Whose fault is that? I don't think this is about fault here. I'm I'm convinced. I think what people want to understand is what we're doing to help address it. There's a handful of Americans, and I'm sure you're not suggesting we should have flights with hundreds of people we don't know who they are, where there's no security protocols. Too few. I I just am conveying to you there's a handful of Americans who we are also in touch with, and we are working to help get evacuated from Afghanistan. Whose fault is it? Not that it's a matter of pointing out fault here. Yeah, it is, because you humiliated the country in the process of embarrassing yourself, and you're trying to coin it as a success. Senator Ben Sass has never bought into it. He's a member of the Intelligence Budget, Judiciary, and Finance Committees. And, of course, now we're going to see the, the cabinet come up and try to explain themselves, beginning with Tony Blinken next week. Senator Ben Sass, any way to describe the epic failure of this administration? You know, Brian, it is um, it, it's hard to come up with a parallel for uh, the kind of nonsense you see her spewing there. I mean, that that clip you just played, she lies and she lies and she lies every day. She and Secretary Blinken are lying and making up numbers there. I think she used the term dozens a few times. There have been times when Blink, Secretary Blinken went to press it, to press it, to press it. And he would say there were 300 Americans. There were 250 Americans. Six minutes later, there were 200. Then there were 150. Then there were 100. It has been nonsense from the beginning. They will not give an honest accounting of the numbers, um, A, because it would show how much they've been lying, B, it would show how incompetent and cowardly they've been. And so it, it is really tough to come up with an analogy to this moment. There are obviously lots of things about Saigon 1975 that are operative, but there are also a number of things about this that are, are disgustingly worse. Which are? Well, uh, nobody in 1975 was saying it was fine to just leave Americans behind. We, that wasn't the, the sort of uh, presidential position at that point, that you could just abandon people and assume that in a republic, the public is so distracted with Candy Crush and Netflix streaming that they'll just forget about it, which is clearly what the administration is trying to do here. Their plan, in scare quotes, because there isn't a plan, um, has been to abandon the American people, to break our word uh, to our allies, to leave Americans behind, to treat the Taliban like some toddler that needs to be coddled, and then just flood the zone with crap. Like, I mean, as senators right now, we're getting invited to emergency conference calls from the administration so they can give us an update about wildfires in California. Like, that is not what an emergency Senate meeting is about. And they're just clearly trusting that the mainstream media and the public will be distracted and forget about it. But the Taliban is not some, you know, innocent little group of misbehaving toddlers. This is a bunch of bloodthirsty terrorists, which is why they have a new interior minister that has a United States government bounty on his head for his responsibility uh, in the deaths of American troops in the past. Suraj Haqqani and, and the other four of the five Taliban five that, you know, I hosted Tucker last night. We rolled the clip of Barack Obama saying, yeah, this might blow up in our face. We'll see. We could just let's just admit it. It blew up in our face. All four of them are back in power. And you got Mullah Omar's son and brother back with a higher position, and a guy nicknamed Berardo the Butcher, who's now got a big position. But don't worry, Senator Sass, they're acting, so they're going to have to pass some type of Senate 
uh, sanctioning committee. So we'll make sure they might not be full time. We know how they like to set up a government. Today we woke up and found out the Taliban um, were allow, allowing the departures of U.S. representatives, according to Zalmi Khalizad, who's done nothing but epically fail with his negotiations with the Taliban. He's negotiated departures of a flight. They say have Americans on them and Westerners that will land in uh, Qatar. What could you tell us about this? Do you know anything about this? So um, little bits of what I knew a few days ago are not on on the public side, so I have nothing to say there. And as of this morning, um, let's just start with the the simple affirmative fact that every American who loves our neighbors should start with, which is every extra American who gets out of there is a good thing. and the Qataris are complicated, um, but have played a role in trying to get some of these Americans out. So we should celebrate those individual humans and their families. But juxtapose the number that the administration is trying to celebrate right now. What, I, what I've seen, uh, and again, I've been, I've been doing Nebraska field stuff, so I'm not in D.C. and I haven't um, been in a, a classified setting to have a briefing so that my numbers aren't current this morning. But the administration has been trying to say there are 140 Americans getting out. Well, how do you reconcile that with two days ago? They said there were only 100 Americans left. They were lying when they said there were only 100 Americans left. The number was always bigger than any of the numbers they've used. Then they keep shrinking the number, even during a time when nobody was getting out. And they constantly fudge where they imply that U.S. passport holders are the same as the number of all Americans. There are a whole bunch of American green card holders that they regularly exclude from their numbers. And so we need to have them stop with the BS numbers. Um, We've got a slow motion hostage crisis unfolding here, and the administration needs to give an honest accounting of all of the numbers. And and the reason they don't want to do that is because it would then hold them to some account to get those people out. It would also reveal um, their incompetence and cowardice to date, and it would run against their comm strategy here, which is they really believe managing 24-hour news cycles is far more important than the actual Americans who are left behind. They're interested in their own political skin. They're not interested. They're not very interested in these particular uh, Americans who've been left behind, and they're certainly not interested right now in what they've done to devalue the American word across the world. Yeah, I mean, we we heard what Tony Blair said yesterday uh, about America. I just want to visit that, Eric. Listen to what Tony Blair said as the image around the world. Yeah, we, he he came out, and a lot of people say, "Well, they don't like the fact that he stood next to George Bush, and this is political." It's really not political. Let's listen. America has decided that for the foreseeable future. It is a very limited appetite for military engagement, which gives our allies anxiety and our opponents a belief that our time is over. At the exact wrong time, uh, with al-Qaeda and the Taliban joining forces with and against ISIS in Afghanistan 20 years from 9-11. Yeah. Uh, We are... are 
um, fortunate that Tony Blair continues to tell the truth about this stuff. Um, it would be wonderful if the administration would have enough um, introspection and, and self-skepticism uh, to actually listen to what a, some of what Prime Minister Blair has been saying. Um, Brian, I would, I would distinguish between two things. One is what's happening on the ground inside Afghanistan and what's going to happen in the next months and years. And second is what's the implication of the stupid moves of this administration for our long-term existential you know, technology and diplomatic race against the Chinese Communist Party. On the first, the reason al-Qaeda was able to get global reach and attack us and kill 3,000 Americans 20 years ago uh, this coming Saturday was not because the Taliban carried out the, the attack, but because the, uh, Taliban, the Taliban gave them safe haven from which to plot. There are four or five major terror groups that want territory inside Afghanistan. The Taliban, with winks and nods and also just incompetence because they're not going to be able to control to all the edges of the four corners of their country either. Um, there are going to be global terror organizations that have aspirations like bin Laden had uh, on 9-11 that are going to get territory inside Afghanistan, and our focus is going to return to it again, regardless of all the happy talk from President Biden. Uh, the, the truth yeah. is the terror training guard, this place is becoming, Kabul is becoming the global capital of jihad. Um, and, and we're naive if we trust the administration that somehow the Taliban has turned over a kinder and gentler new leaf. You, you jump back in. You're trying to say something. Yeah, Senator, what blows me away is, that, you know, they won, and we chose to give them the victory. And even though the president wants to spin it and get over it, we can't. Because just like we remember Vietnam, we're going to remember the wheel wells and that cargo jet and 900 people on it. And we're not going yeah. to forget what was happening around that airport. We're not going to forget the 13 that died and the 18 uh, and 20 that were wounded and trying to recover at Ramstein that are now home, the ones that aren't, didn't arrive in Dover. Yeah. We're not going to forget that. And, and he thinks, I think he thinks so little of the American people that we're going to think this is like a reconciliation package. It's not. Yeah. It's not even a tax yeah. cut. This is, this is some. we never forget Vietnam. We study World War II. We're not going to forget this, especially 20 years from 9-11. Now, I got to ask you about what uh, Tony Blinken said about what's happening in Mazari Sharif and what you can tell me would be appreciated without blowing any intelligence. There's been a fair amount of confusion surrounding the flights. And let me just clarify a few things. As of now, the Taliban are not permitting the charter flights to depart. They claim that some of the passengers do not have the required documentation. While there are limits to what we can do without personnel on the ground, without an airport, with normal security and procedures in place, we are working to do everything in our power to support those flights and to get them off the ground. Okay, he says the Taliban stopping it. Congressman Mullen said this to us. Right now, I wouldn't believe anything the State Department is saying. I want to be very clear with that. The State Department has fought us every step of the way from getting people in at Hakaya, which was the international airport in, in Kabul, uh, to getting people out and getting people into other countries, and including in Mez, Mez Sharif is what they call it, short as Mez. And let me tell you, we've I've, I personally have had this conversation with the State Department. I have personally had this conversation. This isn't secondhand, this is me, because we have three planes out in, in Measure Sharif that is designated, that were designated to leave. So they were designated to leave, right, uh, Senator? And he says the State Department's showing it. The State Department says the Taliban's not letting it out. Jennifer Griffin said the State Department's saying, we don't know who's on those planes, so we're not gonna allow them to land at American bases. Can you add to this story and tell me your perspective? 
Well, let me just say one thing to give your listeners a tiny bit of comfort about some of the uh, planes that now, like this Qatari Air yep. plane, where we we wouldn't have been doing vetting on the ground because the State Department aban- and the and DOD, the administration, abandoned all of our positions. I mean, the abandonment of Bagram is going to go down in history as one of the stupidest military blunders in 240 years of, of U.S. history. There, there is no excuse for it. There was lots of counterargument inside the administration, inside the Pentagon against the administration doing this, and they try to spin it as a political comms problem yet again. Um, but so there's Bagram. Then there was Karzai and the, the ridiculous idea that we should trust the Taliban to manage the checkpoints and the perimeter. And then this issue at Mez. So we don't have anybody on the ground, um, you know, in a uniformed capacity that's able to do any vetting there. But when they get to places like Qatar, we have um, a lot of U.S. troops doing good work then to rebuild a vetting process. But the, the prior point is when you listen to those talkers from Blinken, he ebbs and flows between just regurgitating the same nonsense talking points, like somehow the Taliban, they need to live up to their commitments and they need to submit a climate plan so they get invited to the right fresh French restaurants uh, for dinner and white wine uh, toast. Nobody in the Taliban cares about that stuff. And so Blinken continues to just be drunk in saying these things about the Taliban living up to their word or – he goes to the tone he had in that uh, little clip um, where he talks about it like it's a lightning strike. Like there's just some active nature that happened and we can't really know who was on the planes and we can't do X and we can't do Y and we're all just helpless. It turns out if a superpower decides not to act like a superpower anymore, it ceases to be a superpower and other countries and bloodthirsty terrorists like these cultists um, don't treat you like a superpower because the administration has willing been willing to just beg these people um, for, for permission to let the American people out. The president's job as commander in chief was to fight to get our people out. Every last American needs to have been gotten out of Afghanistan. And in addition, we need to recognize the disastrous consequences this is going to have for U.S. geopolitics and our economy vis-a-vis China. As you've got CCP diplomats all over the world going out to third countries and saying, hey, when the conflict comes between the U.S. and the Chinese Communist Party over Taiwan, by the way, even if you're not idealistic about any of this, the U.S. economy depends on a chip supply chain that comes via Taiwan. Um, the Chinese diplomats are saying to other countries, are you really going to trust the U.S.? This is how they treat their allies. And right now, the stuff the CCP is saying isn't all that inaccurate about what the administration has been willing to do in terms of how we violated our word to our allies. But by goodness, President Biden's going to keep his word to the Taliban, abandon the American people, abandon our allies, but keep your word to the Taliban. It is bizarre stuff. Senator, I just hope I, I see here Senator Blumenthal is beside himself. Senator, uh, you know, the senator from New Hampshire also is she is extremely upset. I just hope this is bipartisan outrage that people understand this is so much bigger than politics. This is America's reputation, pride, and security on the line. And I just watch you, and I see that you get that. I'm hoping we see that on both sides starting next week in this testimony because there's still things that got to get done there, like getting American people out. Senator, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. All right. Uh, we'll come back. one 408 Expanding your knowledge base, it's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I especially want to point out Gerald Williams, Jorge Posada, Mariano, Andy, Bernie, 
Tino, Cece, Hideki. I mean, you guys in particular were special to me because I never had to worry about what your number one priority was, and that was winning. And I had one goal during my career, and that was to win more than everyone else. And we did. Uh, and that was Derek Jeter. Uh, for some reason, Major League Baseball thought they'd give its biggest star. I now retire, but now eligible and immediately goes into the Hall of Fame. A 1 o'clock slot on a Wednesday afternoon. To me, wh- how does that make sense? I mean, it's not even. De- it's not like you're saying, well, it's August and everybody's off. No, it's September and almost everybody's back in school. The crowd is was huge. The setting was perfect. The, the speech was excellent. And it put in perspective a 20-plus year career that didn't have him get an MVP, but did get him a World Series MVP. But he was a standout and a steady performer on one of the finest teams over a period of time, even in Yankee history, with six world championships, where he entered as a young guy, and he entered as the uh, and he left as the veteran. I mean, even on his 3,000th hit, was a grand slam. I mean, this guy seems to do everything right. Never got in trouble in New York, yet he was single the entire time. And according to Eric, a sex symbol, and Pete agreed. No, I agree with you, and he's someone that, you know, as the MLB needs sort of a little bit of help PR-wise, you would want to put him front and center. But also I feel like he's the guy you want your kids to look up to as athletes or as people and not taking political stances and who just wants to win the most he can for his team and be a player that's great for the game. Right, and now this is what he said. They took a shot, and I guess his his wife is quite attractive. It was shocking. And he's got two young girls. And he's like, I wish they could have seen me play. And you think about that. He waited to the end of his career because he wanted to focus on his career. But the bad news is you don't experience any of those family things for your entire career. So they're stuck watching video. That is true. But, I mean, that's that's life, though, right? I mean, how many things did you put off because you wanted to focus? And in retrospect, you're like, oh, it would have been great if this person was here for that. But right. you can't change it. Michael Jordan was there and Patrick Ewing. Why Jordan? I think they're close. They have this mutual respect. But I think Derek Cheetah was one of the first athletes to wear the Jordan brand. So that's when Jordan was so big, Nike gave him his own division. And then the first one he reached to is, I think, a 26-year-old Derek Jeter, world champion, crystal, squeaky clean image, um, which is real special. I thought it was great. For Yankee fans, fantastic. The only thing he hasn't done is one with the Marlins. But just watch him. If he gets involved with the baseball side, look out. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show, 1-866-408-7669. In a matter of moments, we're going to talk to Senator uh, Joni Ernst, who's not only representing this country as a senator from Iowa, but she's also a veteran. And it's got to be just tearing her up to see what's happening in Afghanistan right now as we effort to get our people out. Yeah, we left 10% behind. That's our new motto. We get 90% of the people out. Jason Chaffetz at the bottom of the hour. And what these testimony, starting with Secretary of State Anthony Blinken next week, will sound like, look like, and where we go from here. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Can you honestly say today to those families, to Americans listening, that we are safer today than we were 20 years ago? 
I tend to think that the actions that we took over the past 20 years, by and large, I think we are in a better position relative to Islamist extremists now than we were, you know, the day before 9-11. Uh, maybe. That's General Petraeus, who was in Kosovo at the time. 9-11, 20 years later, are we safer? Has our country changed forever? If so, uh, is it for the better? Your thoughts and calls. Number two. He's been dealing with multiple crises from, uh, you know, the immigration uh, situation at the border to inflation to crime, etc. But Afghanistan has really hurt him and, and really accelerated uh, the decline that was sort of already underway. No kidding. Uh, that is Tom Bevan, Real Clear Politics. Polls plummeting. Joe Biden goes back to his favorite play, COVID-19. Today, he'll unveil a six-point plan to tackle the Delta variant, which came three months ago. Yep, my prediction, he'll talk restrictions, berate those hesitant on vaccination, throw in a booster shot that divides the country and has the WHO against him. But that's leadership, Biden style. Number one. The real challenge here is directions from state. And the State Department is failing to give them adequate information. They're, they're letting them leave. They can catch an Uber and actually leave the base. They don't know exactly how many are even there. So they can't account for someone if they don't return. It's so true. Taliban allowed 200 to leave. They say private flights remain grounded and ten, tens of thousands of Afghan refugees stream into our country on our military bases. Many unvetted, many children without parents and some others with an Uber app. So they decided to explore Virginia. No joke. Showing Joe Biden's exit from Afghanistan is not only humiliating America, he is also charging the taxpayers billions to pay for it. And that's not hyperbole. Uh, joining us now, Senator Joni Ernst. Senator, what are your thoughts at this hour? I see you wrote a letter uh, to President Biden, uh, along with others, and here's a quote. We were regarding the humanitarian crisis created by your withdrawal of the, from the, of the United States from Afghanistan and the safety and well-being of our fellow countrymen. An excerpt, our immediate priority is the safety and well-being of American citizens. We're also concerned about the reports of ineligible individuals, including Afghans, with ties to terror or serious violent criminals were evacuated alongside innocent refugee families. What sources are you going with that? I've heard the same thing. Right, exactly. And a lot of this is open source information, of course. But um, I go back to earlier this spring when I went to the White House and spoke with uh, the national security advisors to President Joe Biden. And those of us that attended that meeting were insistent that the State Department get moving right then to start vetting these Afghan special immigrant visa holders. It was important that we do that months and months and months ago to make sure that there was proper accounting. There are so many Afghans that have stood beside our service members. We should have properly vetted them to make sure that this process went smoothly. We should have started getting Americans out much before we did. The Biden administration waited until the last possible minute, matter of fact, after we had already withdrawn all of our troops and created this catastrophe in Afghanistan. So now we, we don't know who is coming in. They are supposed to be properly vetted before they hit American soil. Um, and again, going back to our insistence months ago that they get on this, um, and, and they refuse to do that. They drug their feet. Uh, so President Biden has shown no leadership through this um, or poor leadership. 
through this debacle in Afghanistan. And you said, you know, early on in your program that, you know, this is probably tearing me apart. And it is. Uh, this entire episode has really created a dark stain on America, and it's disheartening to those of us that served in the global war on terror to see the way all of the progress and the safety and security that we have provided for the United States of America is now torn apart by this administration. It's true. 23 years uh, combat veteran, uh, the first uh, Air Force pilot, fighter pilot to get into the U.S. Senate. But not everybody's upset yeah. by it. Army, army. Uh, my Army. fault. Yeah. Um, uh, not everybody's <laughs> upset by it. Listen to Speaker Pelosi, cut five. I do think that uh, the historic uh, evacuation of 120,000 people was remarkable, and I commend the administration for that. This is never easy. That's not always uh, complete right from the start. Uh, but it was remarkable, even though it got off to a, a, a hazy start. And... Uh, now we, now we go forward. Really? Just like that, we go forward? Oh. What questions do you have? What do you mean we go forward? Are you ready to do that? Well, we can't just pretend like this never happened. We have a 20-year history of fighting terrorists overseas, and now we are vulnerable because Afghanistan is still a hotbed for violent extremist organizations. Uh, this over-the-horizon uh, capability that the president Touts all the time. It's only as good as the information we're able to collect, and it is much degraded since since we left the way we did out of Afghanistan. So, to Speaker Pelosi's point that this was remarkable, yeah, it was remarkable airlifting that many people out of a country. But the fact of the matter is, the only reason we had to airlift so quickly, and God bless the pilots and all of the extraordinary people on the ground that made it happen. It wasn't because of Joe Biden. Um, but the only reason we had to do that is because of the hasty and haphazard withdrawal that President Joe Biden insisted upon in Afghanistan. He's the one that left that country in a lurch. He is the one that forced the hand of the Air Force and all of those other wonderful folks, as I said, to getting all of these Afghans and Americans out. And to your point, we did leave Americans behind. I don't call that a great success. So I want you, Mark Green says he's finding us some disturbing news about something you wrote about in your letter about what is happening. So far, Joe Biden, we think, once he's going to ask you, he's going to ask Congress for $6.5 billion to relocate and acclimate and maybe make these 90,000 Afghan citizens Two point four is six point four billion dollar bill. Two point four from the Defense Department to do their thing. One point three billion for resettlement in our country. Eight hundred sixteen million for a U.S. agency for international development to get other countries to take some. One hundred ninety three million for U.S. citizenship and immigration services. I guess we're we're picking up the tab to make them citizens. And one point seven billion to HHS, which we know will waste that health and human services. So they're going to get full welfare as well. Listen. If they helped you guys survive, I'm all for it. If they have proven themselves, I'm with it. But because they mo- uh, they worked in motor vehicle in Kabul, I don't necessarily think they deserve to be jumped ahead on our citizenship ladder. Right. And we have this special immigrant visa program, which, again, we pushed very early in this year for those that were interpreters and and so forth. And we know that they have talents and skills that can be put to use here in the United States. They can obtain jobs. 
Um, but again, we're going to have to scrutinize this and go through oversight hearing. There's a lot of money that was allocated for Afghanistan. So why can't we shift money that's already been allocated of course. and use it? It should not go to the Taliban. Um, and if one dollar of that is going to the Taliban, it needs to stop and we can use it for other purposes. But just for them to ask carte blanche, OK, we want another six or six and a half billion dollars. No, you can't tell me that we can't find that somewhere else. And it should be going to those that supported our men and women in uniform and making sure that we get them properly settled after they are properly vetted and coming into the United States. Uh, I want I want you to hear Mark Green's frustration. You know, he's a military officer, cut eight. Yeah. We don't have biometrics Wonderful. on a good portion of these people, and we can't really get information from state because they won't provide names. They won't provide any information on the people, the numbers that they have. They won't even tell us how many American citizens they evacuated. We tried to get that number, uh, you know, requested through the National Defense Authorization Act the other day, and, and, and I couldn't get that passed. Um, it's just crazy. This State Department is a complete failure. I, I, it, they failed in every way. Mm-hmm. And the Defense Department mm-hmm. and State Department, uh, you know, the defense basically is, is point behind scenes, is pointing fingers, I understand, at the state because they left them in an impossible situation. You have great contacts. You have people that have to be responsible to you. What are they telling you? Right. And this is difficult because we can't get information from the State Department. We can't get those numbers. And we we don't have lists of all of the people. And this is concerning um, as we're trying to sort through various flights, making sure that various personnel are proper, properly evacuated out of Afghanistan, whether they're American citizens or Afghan special immigrant visa holders. We can't get that information. And the State Department has been really lackluster, and not just in these last few weeks. It has been in the last months. You know, I keep going back to we met with them in the early spring. We met with the White House, put the pressure on the State Department. None of that happened. And now we can't get a full accounting of who is entering into the United States. And for heaven's sakes, Brian, I mean, think about it. The State Department and this administration gave the Taliban lists of American citizens and SIV holders that, you know, help them get to the airport. I'm sorry, if we can release that information to the Taliban, how come we as Congress can't get the information of those that are entering the United States? Do you know anything about the flight that left landing in Qatar from Kabul? We say that has, they say up to 200 Americans on them, which is crazy because they said there was only 100. But have, do you know anything about this? No, no. And that's the problem is that, yes, they'll say, oh, there are Americans on this flight. But there are probably other people as well. You know, there's still maybe some Brits or um, some French, probably some SIV holders um, from Afghanistan. We don't know. And I think, again, it's sloppy, sloppy work by the State Department when they're not releasing information to us. We should have access to that. We should be able to report to our constituents that we've been able to evacuate X number of Americans out of Afghanistan. And here's how they were evacuated. I think that's important as well, because 
the United States, as far as I can tell, the State Department is really not doing any of this work. Um, what we have seen are a lot of volunteer organizations, a lot of other countries that are evacuating people, whether they're Americans or other diplomats um, out of Afghanistan. So we need to know and understand this and give thanks to those great volunteer organizations that are getting people out of the country, because it certainly isn't the Biden administration and the United States. I just I just don't think I think the American people will not give any administration a pass on this. This is just too big. He said there will no be be no Saigon moment. This is so much worse. Uh, Senator Joni Ernst, thanks so much. You bet, Brian. Thank you. You got it. one 408 I'll come back, take your calls, get your perspective uh, as we come up to 20 years since 9-11, as well as what we are talking about, too. And what do you expect Joe Biden to say is going to be the new mandates to come out of his new six-point plan, which I guarantee you will be absolutely useless. Don't move. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first, only on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Radio that makes you think. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Absolutely infuriating. I know Larry Elder. He's a friend. He's a mentor. Uh, he's on the board of, of, of the Blexit Foundation, which is my foundation. And let me say, tell you something right now. If this was on the other side, if a white woman wearing a monkey mask uh, threw an egg at a black Democratic candidate, this would be wall-to-wall coverage. And actually, this might actually constitute a hate crime in Los Angeles. We need to find out exactly who this woman is. She needs to be arrested, and she should be charges need to be brought because this is, this is absolutely criminal and disgusting, and it might be racist. I'm unsure why she was wearing the monkey mask. I have no idea why she was wearing it, but I'd like to see more information about that. So Candace Owens on with me when I hosted Tucker last night, and uh, she was talking about what happened with, with uh, Larry Elder. Larry Elder is leading the Republican side. There's like 40 candidates to recall Gavin Newsom. It's not going to matter what Larry Elder gets unless Gavin Newsom gets less than 50 percent. Next week's the election. People are already voting uh, because everybody got a ballot mailed to their house. A lot of people concerned about the integrity of the election. But what Candace Owens is referring to is Larry Old Elder went down to Venice Beach where there's a homeless encampment that have taken over that legendary place. He started at Gold's Gym, which is walkable from there, and he got a nice reception. As he walked out uh, on his tour in these last days to try to convince people that he could be a better answer than the very lazy, uh, the very lazy, ineffective governor who was a terrible mayor, who uh, have no idea, keeps failing up. Uh, how much better he is than Gavin Newsom. Out of nowhere comes a group of people led by a woman in a monkey mask and a guy yelling, boy, 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 get get out of here, boy, which is insulting and racist. And then you have a woman in a monkey mask throwing eggs and taking swings at his, uh, I guess you would say, his security. I don't know if they got cleared or not to act as security because they weren't doing anything. And they didn't really feel compelled to hold her back, and they felt like it would have been more problematic if they did. So this is unbelievable. So I look, pick up the L.A. Times today. I wish I look at it online. There's no picture of the woman in the monkey mask. Nobody's even covering this. Now, Kamala Harris did an appearance also in Los Angeles for Gavin Newsom. They were screaming, how could you be here when we have Americans left in Afghanistan? They were also screaming at Joe Biden the same thing. They weren't, har- they weren't harassing them. They were letting their voices be heard. They weren't hurling things at them. Here is Leo Terrell, a lifetime Los Angeles citizen. Cut 36. And that tape of Larry Elder, which you just showed, that we just showed to the viewers, first time I've seen it, it's disgusting. What you just saw with Larry Elder is the de- democratic fear that you have 
people of color leaving the Democratic Party, Larry Elder, a black Republican, telling other people of color to go to the right side, to the Republican side. And they don't want it because if you take the black and the brown vote away from the Democratic Party, you don't have a Democratic Party at all. And that's what they fear. That's what's happening in Los Angeles. And what you saw with Kamala Harris, in my opinion, a benefit for Larry Elder to campaign because she is a total disaster. Wow. And obviously he's ticked off and embarrassed that this is his town, his city as a as a uh, Leo Terrell, a civil rights attorney and African-American. Larry Elder happens to be a conservative from South Central L.A. He grew up in the inner city, went to school there and he came out a conservative. That's his beliefs. But to say that he's a white supremacist, he's the black face of white supremacy and people give traction to that. And the people are attacking him and going over his shows and trying to find out what he said that might be. Uh, might be something might be uh, uh, politically beneficial for Gavin Newsom, who now has Joe Biden showing up there to help him out, which is pathetic. Joe Biden has no base and he's got so much other things on his plate. And Gavin Newsom happens to be the only politician, I think, to praise Joe Biden by the way he left Afghanistan, which also shows you about his judgment. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. When we come back, Jason Chaffetz joins us, and we'll talk about what Joe Manchin will or will not do when it comes to $3.5 trillion reconciliation package. Don't move. Breaking news. Unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. This is going to be paid for. That is something the president uh, is committed to, something Senator Manchin has called for as well. And the real choice right now is whether you're going to lower costs for people in this country on elder care, child care, cost of college, or whether you're going to uh, prevent or allow uh, the wealthiest Americans and corporations to continue to pay the tax rates that are hardly fair uh, moving forward. Right. Uh, We were definitely an unfair country. Uh, We need cradle-to-grave social work programs, and let's vilify the rich. We don't know where the money's coming from, but, man, Jen Psaki just spouting it. With me right now is Jason Chavitz. He knows the inner workings of bill-making and reconciliation as good as anyone. He used to do that for a while, former uh, chairman of the House Oversight Committee, author of They Never Let a Crisis Go to Waste, Fox News contributor. Now, Jason, welcome. Great to see you in person. Yeah, it's good to see you in person. Yeah, yeah, it's good. First off, on this reconciliation package, I know President Biden wants to get over it. We will talk about Afghanistan. I'm not getting through this. The worst and most embarrassing thing to happen to my our country, self-inflicted in my lifetime. 20 years after 9-11. But on this in particular, they're trying to tell us we need elder care, we need preschool, we need school lunches paid for, we need free community college, we need expanded Obamacare. There are things in here that we can't possibly pay for at $3.5 trillion. So Joe Manchin has come out, and he has basically told individual Democrats, I can't pay for this. I'm not going to sign off on this. A lot of the green stuff he's not going to sign off on. He told, for example— on the child tax credit, he told Senator Michael Bennett, I don't think we should be doing it at the rate we're doing it. He told uh, the chairman, uh, Senator Ron Wyden, uh, he told him that he will, there's put many key provisions he will not be going for, including the corporate tax hikes back up to 28%. And on education, a lot of the things I just mentioned, he's told other lawmakers, I'm not going for that. When it comes to fossil fuels, he's from West Virginia. Right. He can't possibly represent West Virginia and think he's going to get rid of all fossil fuels like they want him to. So he said, stood up to that. Having said all that, now bring me to reality. What's going to happen? Well, the Democrats 
attack this as if we aren't spending other money already. Remember, of the if you look at the federal budget, 75% of it is mandatory programmatic spending. It happens no matter what Congress does. So we're only talking about the discretionary part of the budget that when I was in Congress, elected 2008 with Barack Obama, same year, uh, was less than $1 trillion. So now they want to suddenly grow it to three point five plus trillion dollars. Add to the debt. Add to the the debt. When I was running for office, it was eight to nine trillion. Now we're talking about a ten year projection of forty. I think it's forty two trillion dollars. What they do is they grow government. That's what they're doing. There's already 2.2 million federal workers. What you're going to see is massive pay increases, more regulators, more federal government. They, I mean, that is the socialist Senate Democratic reality. That's what they want. You don't actually get more education. You don't actually get better roads. We did this. They already had a stimulus. The $787 billion they did, they did as this quote-unquote infrastructure bill back in 2009. Were the roads suddenly better? Is education any better? No. Less than 5% of that actually went to roads, bridges, and infrastructure. So there, it is part of negotiating, and, and they're going to get a big portion of it. But Manchin, I think, is the one realist out there. They're not going to get a single Republican and I think Cinema and Mansion and maybe a couple others, but I think he's air cover for a lot of people because it's also coupled with tax increases, which is something you can do under um, under reconciliation as part of the budget rules. It, I mean, it they fits the to, bird rule. I mean, it's they're trying the to throw rule. voting reform in there too, yeah. as well, and all this other stuff. Uh, so this is on top of the one point two trillion five hundred sixty billion new money that's on the so called bipartisan bill, right. which the Democrats think is an insult. How dare you give me this bill? I'm not even looking at that unless you pass this. Yeah, and that's what's wrong with the way the Republicans negotiated. They should have said, if you're going to do something bipartisan, this is going to be the only thing that we do. Don't just say, hey, that's the starting point. We'll go fill in all the other Green New Deal wish list items on reconciliation. That was the flaw with what the Republicans and for the Republicans to join the Democrats saying this is fully paid for. Guess what, folks? Nothing is paid for because we are so far in debt. So you were you would not be voting for the bipartisan bill. Oh, no way. But you do think we need uh, we need infrastructure. We, we never have a discussion in this country about is where are we going to cut? Because we can't just keep cutting. We, I personally, keep spending we, me. We, yeah, we got to cut. We can't keep spending. I think we need a balanced budget amendment. I think that actually solves it. There are people out there who are very good at the ec- at economics of this right. that think, hey, if you do a balanced budget amendment, what that does, it gives the Democrats an excuse to to actually raise taxes. Well, if we actually were taxed for what we are getting, I think there'd be an uproar in this country. We're we're just spending. It's such an ungodly amount of money and what happened is with this pandemic in 2008 the same thing happened the, the economy crashed and people started putting all types of things in and now you you even write about that now we have this economic crisis where it didn't care ppp money we have to pay people not to work because we're closing up restaurants and gyms and they have nowhere to go and right. marco rubio helped spearhead that and i've heard i've not heard a counter argument to you know we didn't know it was hitting us with this pandemic but now as we start to stand up the economy the democrats don't want to because the rent relief, the the debt forgiveness when it comes to student loans, the supplemental when it comes to unemployment. And now they're saying, well, we were spending that. Chuck Schumer got this idea that the American people would digest it. I have not seen a good counter narrative 
because, oh, you don't like children if you don't like the child right. tax credit. You don't like old people if you don't like the elder care. You know, you don't like, uh, you don't think it's good for minorities to go to community college? How dare you? I mean, there's effective arguments there, but they're not great political arguments. Well, and this is where Republicans are pathetic in their messaging. I buy into the whole Margaret Thatcher. First, you got to win the argument, then you go win the votes. But you better darn well explain to the American people why the debt and the deficit matters. By the way, we're spending... $1.5 billion every day on just the debt that we have already. So you on want interest. more? Yes, that's just the interest payment. So Can you imagine you, those interest payments go up? Yeah, well, th- th- that's the, the point is up. the interest is near zero, and so you're paying $1.5 billion and getting nothing for that. If you want more roads, bridges, better schools, all those kinds of things, get rid of the debt and look how much money we would have. All right, yeah, and just real quick, I don't love playing her sound bites, but she contradicts Jen Psaki, cut 34, Nancy Pelosi. Because we will pay for more than half, maybe all of the of the legislation. So, unlike the Republicans when they did their tax scam in 2017 tax and added two trillion dollars to the national debt, we will not. We will be taking some responsibility to pay for what is in there. So the the cost for the future will be much lower than any 3.5. So it takes some of the cost, half the cost. It doesn't really matter. It's, it's not her money. It's 100%. It's half. You know, it's somewhere in between there. We'll get it all paid for. That That is such a com- – I, I know she counteracts what the, what the White House is saying, but it is such a complete and total lie. The big fight that I think is going to happen that really is going to split people is going to be the one over SALT, the state and local tax limitations, because – that uh, people like Chuck Schumer are going to want to raise the limit. Remember, this is where if you pay in excess of $10,000 in state and local taxes, you can just deduct that right out of your federal taxes. That was capped under Trump at $10,000. To get some more additional money to pay yes. for the tax cuts. And, and, and Schumer and company, they want to get rid of that limitation so that high-tax states like New York, New Jersey, California have more revenue. It, it, it's a, it, that is going to be the battle. So I want to switch over to the coronavirus and the controversy around it. Today, Joe Biden's got a six-point plan to deal with the Delta virus by variant. But we also have a MU or a MU variant that's coming our way that's in 49 states. When asked about it, Anthony Fauci says they're looking at the data. So that's great because I love when he looks at the He's data. He's not doing a photo shoot for I, Vanity Fair? I, right. He had to look at data, then he goes to the shoot. Oh, okay. Uh, he had to get it. He had to press his lab coat to pretend he's right, an actual right, doctor right, right. and not a professional TV personality. So when now all of a sudden, if you're not vaccinated, everyone in Hollywood, the so-called talk show hosts with who uh, celebrities seem to like, or the high-profile CNN hosts who no one seems to watch, they have an opinion on what should happen to you should you get this variant or use ivermectin. Cut 24. If you're not going to get vaccinated, you don't want to social distance, you don't want to wear a mask, then maybe you don't want to go to the hospital when you get sick. I know that sounds harsh, but you're taking up the space for people who are doing things the right way. Anyone who's unvaccinated and needs to be in the hospital for a COVID, they should just say, no, we're sorry. We told you to get vaccinated and you didn't. So you're done. That's it. Go home and uh, take that horse uh, dewormer. Good luck to you. Dr. Fauci said that if hospitals get any more overcrowded, they're going to have to make some very tough choices about who gets an ICU bed. That choice doesn't seem so tough to me. Vaccinated person having a heart attack? Yes, come right on in. We'll take care of you. Unvaccinated guy who gobbled horse goo? Rest in peace, Wheezy. You're hysterical, right? Yeah. Uh, Fantastic. I mean, there's so many reasons why 
Look, I got the vaccine. My wife got the vaccine. It's right for us, but it's not right for everybody. I mean, what if you're a young woman who was pregnant? Would you take it? Having had no to, test, but would you do it at, with no testing? Would you? Would you yeah. actually go do that? Uh, there are other people that have different conditions that and reasons why you wouldn't. Maybe you had an adverse reaction to a vaccine previously. That happened to a student in Hawaii. So you can't just universe. This is the arrogance, the pompous. Uh, approach that these liberals And I could have went on for three hours with these celebrities to tell you do this or else. Let me ask you something. And I used this analogy last night. If you're overweight, if you're obese and you're having a heart attack, what are you doing? You ate too much. Next, what if you smoke and you have lung cancer? Should I be wasting my time giving you chemo and cancer treatment or surgery? You chose to smoke. What if you OD'd? Why should I try to revive you, give you Narcan? You chose to yeah. do something illegal. Where does it end? Now they assume that the vaccine is safe for everyone. And my feeling is this. There's two, two examples I have. One is I got laser surgery, and I got it on camera. And I had more people come up to me say, should I do it? And I go, I don't know. I'll give you my doctor's name because I also know people that got laser surgery, and they got halos, and they had vision was not the same, and they had – Imagine if I recommended that right. and they can't see as well. And then when I have a friend of mine who came out and this show has heard me say this before, and he gets his whole family vaccinated, including his 17-year-old soccer-playing son, and his heart swells. He has nonstop heart pain. He goes in. He's got fluid on his heart, can't play this season. They said you can't surf. You can't exert yourself or you could have a heart attack. We hope this goes away. For a vaccine he didn't need, he already had the virus to begin with, he was born susceptible to the vaccine. What would Jimmy Kimmel say about that? Now, look, these are some of the same people, some that believe in infanticide. They they are fine with killing a baby even though it may still be in the womb. You know, that's uh, there are different people who've got different approaches on that, but... But don't be sanctimonious. It's so cold. I, I, I just... It's just absolutely stunning that they would try to cast dispersion on their fellow Americans who may have conditions and reasons they may not know about. And you know what? It's none of their business. I know. It is none of their business. It never has before. I'm not looking over and making sure you can get, uh, you know, a... uh, a hepatitis shot. I'm not making sure you do anything because it turns out I'm not a doctor. I checked this morning. I can't operate on people. I can't see patients. I don't know why I should start giving medical advice. I wish maybe it's just a self-esteem issue. Maybe I should get my self-esteem up, Jason. Back in a moment. (laughs) This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. All right, we're back. I was waiting for a bump in sound, but I'd rather have just me because uh, I find myself fascinating. Uh, with me right now is Jason Chaffetz. He'll be on with Gutfeld tonight. Uh, Gutfeld sat down with Donald Trump, and uh, and I think that I think he found him interesting. The one thing that people have noticed is that uh, Jason, uh, I know you talked to the president recently. The president's not uh, spray tanning, and he lost weight. He's dead serious about being Grover Cleveland, isn't he? He very well might be. I mean, do you look, really mean might, or do you think he's in? Um, if I had a, I think he very well might be. I don't know how to. I, I mean, I think he's in the best position to do it. I think he wants to. I, I think he's um, frustrated. I think he's his policies have proven that that America misses him. Um, they really like his policies. Some people get upset about some of the tweets, but so what? He, he the policies were the right prescription for America. 
Right. Uh, and do you think that uh, this rally this weekend will show that? I guess in Alabama he had 32,000 yeah. show up. And we know he's popular in Alabama. But for 32,000 for a guy that's not on Facebook or Twitter? I mean, it's it's amazing. He's really the only person that I'm aware of in the realm of politics who can show up and draw a crowd. I, I I think Joe Biden showing up somewhere would have a hard time without really some organization to get a thousand people out. Uh, Kamala Harris, same thing. And and who on the Republican side can draw that kind of attention? I I, I really, it, it's Donald Trump and then everybody else. So I think the best thing to happen to President Trump in the short term is not being on social media right now. And I'm saying this, I, I would I would love for Joe Biden to have been this moderate president that ticked off the AOC and stuff, and I would think it would really challenge Republicans, but he's not close. No. And you look at the self-inflicted wounds at the border, look at the self-inflicted wounds with the economy, look at what's happening in Afghanistan, the biggest embarrassment in my lifetime, look at the way he alienated our allies, look at the way he is having trouble keeping his own party together on a reconciliation package where he needs zero Republicans at all. Look at how he's trying to clumsily pivot from a natural disaster to we need the new Green Deal. This guy's been terrible. And I think without Donald Trump to tweet something distracting, people are fo- forced to focus on the White House. That That's exactly right. Unless there's a, a nemesis, unless there's a foil, unless there's somebody out there to compare and contrast to uh, – Joe Biden's out there by himself. And the promise of Joe Biden, the reality of Joe Biden are two totally different things. And his Joe Biden's problem is he's not a communicator. He can't go out and command he the airwaves. He thinks he is reporting. But he can't, he can't go out there and just grab that microphone and do an interview and sway the country and make the case. And Kamala Harris is absolutely nowhere. She is an albatross around his neck. She's out there campaigning, for goodness sake. All the problems, challenges our country's facing, and she's out there on the campaign trail for the governor of California. What about this report in Politico that the Biden people cringe when he speaks, that he thinks is his own best messenger, that they often mute the TVs, and they fear when he takes questions. And his response, when he had, was forced to take questions, I don't know if we pull that soundbite, but even yesterday, listen to this. Now, I'm supposed to stop and walk out of the room here. I'm going to stop. But with your permission, I'm going to walk into the room because I want to say hello to all. That's all he does. I, I'm not supposed to hear the people I'm supposed to call on. Here's the list they gave me. How weak does that look? It, 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 it's just, I think, a reflection of reality. I think he is weak, and I think his staff is scared to death. They, look, he, this is how he campaigned, and he won. So there's some people out there saying, well, it worked. And you know what? you got a traditional media that won't hold, hold him to account. You don't see stories about the lack of access. You, they're just fine reading the press releases and letting so- you know, Jen Psaki try to, try to spin it the way she wants. 30 seconds. He believes that the Afghanistan's a news cycle or two. I don't believe that. I have more faith in the American people. What do you think? I, I think it's, this is really deep-seated. I think it offended the country coast to coast, and I think they, everybody knows somebody— who was affected by this? This is fought not a the, the, the fought there and is going to suffer the consequences of a future terrorist attack. And think about this, Jason Chaffetz, 20 years since 9 yeah. 11. So you want this to be a news cycle, really, after the worst attacks since Pearl Harbor on our country were reminded of? Not a chance. Uh, Jason, we'll see you on Gutfeld tonight. I know people will focus on Greg, but I'll be looking at you. Oh, thank you. You got it. Thank you. Hey, uh, go to BrianKilme.com, order any of my books, and find out my appearances as I start the war against history. I'll tell you how to win it. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.